0: Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk.
1: You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Kiri Farm is a proposed mental health recovery center which will build a community on site allowing people to heal and integrate into a society away from a clinical setting. It's a concept which has worked well in the US and there is a similar centre in Cork. I'll be meeting a couple of the board members of Curie Farm to find out more. And did you know that Irish women are five times more likely to die from heart disease than breast cancer? I'll be finding out more with JT Trainer, health promotion and information training team member at the Irish Heart Foundation. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I'm glad to say I am back to full health and very grateful for it. too. normal energy levels have resumed so I can go about my business and it has been great Hopefully, that is my illness stint done for the next little while. And it was my wedding anniversary this week. And I often think we forget what an important role our relationships play in our health. Now, all of them our family, our friendships, our colleagues, and our romantic ones they can lift us up, they can cause us stress, and ultimately go a long way to making up our lives and who we are within it. So, Obviously, this week, myself and my husband were reminiscing. We watched the wedding video, which I now have on my phone. And we were talking, of course, about various parts of the day. And we were thinking about the next day when we were driving home from our venue in Meath. And we got married in a place called the Mill House in Slane and they have a bigger a hall now or a place for people to have guests. But at the time that we got married 14 years ago now, we had a marquee. And as you're driving into Slane, you can see the venue across the river and you have to cross the bridge and drive in the driveway. So, Obviously, when we were driving home, we were looking at that all backwards, back across the river at the house where all the magic had happened and the marquee and all our guests. And we pulled in, got out of the car and we were taking photos of all of this and holding our hands up with our wedding rings. It was all lovely at the time and it's a much loved photo in our home. And this man stopped and he asked us what we were doing. And he was an American on holiday and he said he was 52 years married and his advice was to work at it every day. Now, we both kind of laughed over dinner on Tuesday. I'm not sure we lived up to it every single day for 14 years. It is very easy to take the people close to us for granted. But I suppose it's about pulling it back when things go awry and making time. And I found this in my friendships too lately, that you really do need to keep making an effort. No matter how busy life gets, it's sort of like watering a plant, isn't it? If you're not doing it consistently, a little and often, you sometimes come back to something that is wilted or worse. And in other news, I watched a brilliant talk this week by an author called Ghanine Roth. And she was telling her story of disordered eating over the years and how... What's on our plates and how we eat has a direct correlation to how we see ourselves and live our lives. What we feel we deserve, what's enough, what nourishes us. And she gave some guiding principles, which I will share with you. One was, know what is enough. And this wasn't just about food. This is about being happy with what you have and focusing on that. She was talking about losing all of her money, her husband and hers life savings to the Bernie Madoff scam. And she realised that when she had that money, she never really felt she had enough. And when she lost it, she had to work really hard on all the things that were good and right in her life. And that's the lesson she now imparts. The next one was stop criticising yourself, blaming someone else or complaining about anything. Easier said than done, but good words to live by. And the last was stop waiting for your life to begin. When we're very young, we just want to grow up. And when we get there, we can spend a lot of our time waiting for our life to truly start, which doesn't really make any sense. If we're not showing up fully in our lives, then we're actually missing it. So she really resonated with me this week. You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com. Kiri Farm is a transformative initiative for Ireland's mental health services. The logo says rooted in healing and the farm will aid recovery for people experiencing significant mental health difficulties through a supportive community, therapeutic and holistic care and meaningful opportunities for participating in a natural farm setting. I'm joined in studio now by three of the people behind the project. John McKeown is founder, director and board member. Dr. Owen Gallivan is clinical psychologist for HSC North Dublin and Director on the board of Key Farm, and Martin Rogan, who is CEO of Mental Health Ireland. Well, you're all very welcome.
0: Thank you, Claire.
1: John, can I start with you? Because it is a tough experience yourself and your family went through that began the seed of Keary Farm. So tell us a little bit. Your yourself and your wife Vicky had three sons.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, we had three sons, Kieran, Michael, and Rory, and for you know, the first 12 or 13 years of Kieran's life, everything would be, you know, what we might call idyllic, what you'd expect, a young fellow growing up in uh, in South Dublin, going to Holly Park School, and everything was very well. But unfortunately, when he was about 13 and in secondary school, he got hit with chronic fatigue, and the chronic fatigue... Was really quite severe, so he was. His school life was very interrupted, and over time, over about three years, that led on to depression. So the next three years were chronic fatigue and depression, and it was a very difficult time. Kieran um, had all the supports that the the Irish medical system could give at the time. So you know he was regularly in St John of God's hospital. Um, A wonderful psychiatrist there, Uh, Dr. Uh, David McNamara did as much as he could. But in the end, Kieran was discharged from uh, John of Gods and um, probably wasn't ready for home. And we did our utmost, and my wife was absolutely wonderful in in sort of caring for him at home. But, you know, when somebody's stuck in a room with depression it's really hard engaging there and it led to unfortunately um a number of uh, suicide attempts and readmission uh, to hospital but and in in the end Kieran took his own life in in March 2013 which you know is devastating for a family and uh, I suppose we spent you know the next few years just trying to recover from it, but a year after Kieran died, I visited a place in the states called Gould Farm. I was over on business and I had the opportunity to go and visit. I'd heard of Gould Farm and uh, what struck me about Gould Farm was once you went in there the the atmosphere the you could feel the the respect for the individuals, you could feel the engagement between the Clinicians and the guests was wonderful. You you know, at a morning meeting there, you didn't know who was a clinician and who was a guest. And the ingredients that they have there for healing was really around uh, community, around nature, most importantly, meaningful participation, which is really about bringing a structure to people's day. Um, and then professional therapy, therapeutic support as well. And I suppose when you reflect back to Kieran's journey of so much time in his room and there really not being a structure to that, not not having that hope and meaningful purpose. And that, that was one of the main things that struck me about Gould Farm. What they tried to do is have such a range of activities that people can participate in. So no matter where you are on your recovery journey, even if it's only the ability to plant a little seed or, you know, maybe you're well on the way to your recovery and you can serve people in the cafe and engage with people. So they have that whole... The farm allows that ability for such a range of activities. So I I wasn't... That was a year after Kieran died. I was not ready to, to do this sort of thing. So I worked on for another uh, four years until my youngest uh, boy, Rory, was 18. And when he was 18, then I, I, uh, I quit my work and went to Trinity to do a psychology conversion course, which was really an opportunity for me to process my own grief. So I was a fifty-year-old in Trinity, and uh, all these young students doing student psychology, and they were very happy to have a dad in the corner. They they were very helpful to me, um, and that was a wonderful time. But after after doing that, myself and my wife, we walked uh, the Camino, and on that journey, I, I really thought about what do I want to do with the next phase of my life. I'd worked thirty years in you know professional roles in different organisations. And I just thought it would be wonderful to at least try and bring Gould Farm to Ireland if we could have one facility like that in Ireland that uh, is really professionally set up. I think in business, you look around the world and you try and take the best and bring it and copy-paste it in. And that's really what we've tried to do here is together with OWN, we've looked around the world at facilities from Australia to Norway to America. And we're trying to bring those Best ingredients into Kiri Farm so that in Ireland we have this step down facility from psychiatric hospital where it really gives people the best opportunity to build their own recovery with respect, with agency, um, rebuilding self esteem and allowing them, you know, hopefully to go on and flourish.
1: Well, firstly, I'm sorry that Kieran went through what he did and your family. Um, but what really struck me about what you said was that he received all the treatment that he could and had the full support, obviously, of a, a loving family. But it's the bridge that was missing, that bridge between the hospital treatment and coming back to, in inverted commas, normal life. And to go from a hospital to your bedroom and it'd be all on you to then reemerge out into society after a huge chapter a huge trauma almost in your life in a very difficult period this is where the farm makes so much sense
2: it is it is that bridge from acute to care in the community and how do you bridge that gap because some people just aren't ready for that gap and you need supports along the way and you know hopefully in time in Ireland care in the community will be able to do all of that but there's huge gaps in the services at the moment um, Martin will speak better to that than me but yeah it is bridging that and it's also you know and it's it's a hard one to say because I do, I do have huge respect for everybody in the system that tried to help Kieran but the culture of the system then and in many ways now is this biomedical focus and it is about tablets being the solution for mental illness and we need to go beyond that You know, the government's own policy talks about the biopsychosocial model. The bio is is the medication, but very importantly, the psycho is all of the professional therapies. And alongside that is the social, and that's about bringing this meaningful participation, rebuilding self-esteem, rebuilding hope and purpose into people's lives. And if you're sitting in a psychiatric hospital, there's a lot of waiting, there's a lot of hanging around, The structure and the environment doesn't allow this meaningful participation. So that's what we're trying to bring with Kiri Farm. It's bringing three legs to that stool, recognising there are times where medication is important. But alongside that, you need this other leg of the stool, which is lots of that professional therapy. And the third leg is rebuilding this social um, skills, self-esteem, hope, and, and skills so that they have the confidence to go back into life.
1: Can I bring Martin Rogan in, CEO of, of Mental Health Ireland? What are the, the, the gaps at the moment with how we handle mental
3: health? Well, I think there are, there are significant gaps. There's no doubt about that. I suppose in Ireland, where we've had in the past a huge mental health service, in 1950, for example, in Ireland, we held a world record for hospitalisation. Uh, Almost 1% of our population spent many, many years, as John has described, in sometimes very bleak, cheap and cheerless old hospitals. There's been a lot of progress made since that. There's far better service in the community now, for example. But the services are still very under-resourced. And like as John has said, that very fundamental piece of good care is where an individual gets to spend time with a professional and re-engages back into the community. So... Coming back from hospital is always a challenge, even for people who've been, you know, in a a surgical admission to hospital. Coming home can be difficult. But if your confidence has been damaged or knocked, or if you're a little bit off grid, how do you reconnect and how do you regather yourself? And I suppose at Mental Health Ireland, in our work, what we do is we work with people in co-production. So we we recognise the expertise of lived experience. And John has described really eloquently there in terms of the sense of agency where the individual makes her own decisions and moves at her own pace. And I think the beauty of a model like Kiri Farm, and it's one of these very elegant, simple ideas, but it's very powerful for that, is that it respects the individual, saying, you know, at what pace can you move? Um, and it doesn't, you know, step aside. It's not an alternate model. It's a complementary model. It enhances what, you know, medications and therapies can do, but actually brings that a stage further. I suppose the other great beauty of it too is that it's in a natural setting. And I suppose we're an agricultural country, but our, our natural habitat is to be out in the air, in the field, growing our own food um, and literally becoming grounded and an opportunity to do that. And while you, you rebuild your confidence, you rebuild your ability to socialise and, and form networks and friendships, which are absolutely essential. We know that an adult who has three friends can have the readmission rate to hospital. So if you have three friends who aren't necessarily fellow service users or professionals, um, you've got a network, a supportive network that's there for you, affirms you and that you actually can contribute to. And and that's a really important part of the the, the carey Farm uh, ethos as well. It's about recognising the value of the individual, the importance of the individual and and moving at the pace that, that they're comfortable with.
1: So, Dr. Owen Galvin, how will it look? I know that you have found a, a site um, and it's got very far along the line. Um, but how will it look for people? Because that's the the idea from John, the theory from from Martin. What will it look like to yeah. somebody going to Kerry Farm?
0: So, we've bought a farm, the charity has bought a farm, and we have plans laid out for being able to accommodate up to 40 people in eight, eight different houses with two large community buildings, And the expectation is that people will stay somewhere between three or six months. That's still kind of, we're holding that likely, but that's the kind of territory we're thinking of. Um, And a a day in the life will be very different depending on where people are on their journey. Uh, So people will have opportunities to engage in a variety of therapies. So there'll be social workers, psychotherapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, nurses, the full range of mental health care professionals will be there. But everyone will be operating in a community setting as part of a community. That's going to be the huge difference here. So a bit like John said, you, it'll be hard to tell who's a guest because everyone will be doing the same kind of stuff together. So that's that's really important to, to bring down the sense of stigma and othering of people with mental health problems, which, as you know, is a kind of a, an issue in Ireland. You know, this idea that people are frightening or um, we should be worried about them. Um, that actually, when you work in mental health care, you realise that's not the case at all. Um, people need uh, social structure and engagement in kind of positive relationships to find their way back into life. So, uh, uh, you know, a day in the life w- would involve attending meetings, uh, working on the farm, cooking together, cleaning together, um, working on keeping the community going together. And that togetherness part of things is a really important ingredient. If you feel like you're part of something, um, it gives a sense of purpose and meaning to your day and to your life. And contribution can be small or it can be very significant. Um, or small and significant, depending on where you are in your journey. Um, so, I guess that's what the, the experience would be very different. When people do come out of psychiatric hospital, there's often very little uh, options for them in terms of support. There are some supports there, and the people who work in various supports around the country do the best they can, but it's really limited. So, we end up with this um, re referral rate back into psychiatric care of a you know, it's over two thirds of people of emissions are readmissions. In other words, people are coming out of hospital uh, after a relatively short period of time, um, usually at a very high threshold of difficulty. So they're in, you know, really struggling. Um, but because the system's under so much pressure, the time available to spend in them is very short sometimes. So they, they're put back into the care in the community, which is very limited, and end up kind of back in, in the hospital setting, often within weeks or months, which is really, really... Er- corrosive on people it's very very eroding if you can imagine how difficult that is to have gone through an acute episode being in an acute psychiatric hospital which can be very challenging uh, and then going back into a home life that is with the best will in the world there aren't the supports there to support you and people kind of deteriorate again to a point where they need readmission that that cycle is really corrosive on people so we're not really able to give people the opportunity to move progressively along their journey to, to get their kind of ground under them So one of the key parts of Kiri Farm will be what we're calling transitions. This idea of moving from uh, being an institutional setting into a community setting and then back into your life. There's a lot of work goes into building, rebuilding a life that has often fallen apart. So people don't, you know, kind of come into severe mental illness just out of the blue. You're not walking down the road and suddenly there's psychosis. These things build up over time. So often people are going back into lives that where relationships are strained, the financial stuff is strained housing might be insecure, their, their working life or their vocational life has fallen asunder. Rebuilding all of that takes a lot of help and care and support and time. So one of the key jobs that we'll be doing is when people come into Curie Farm, as opposed, alongside providing them with this, what will hopefully be a very healing experience, is thinking about, well, what happens when you leave? Where are you going to live? What's your network of relationships and supports like? What's your relationship with services like? What's your financial set, set up like? Um, what kind of vocation or work or education or training are you pointing at when you leave? So when you're leaving, you're not leaving in, it's like a cliff edge of care, another cliff edge of care. We're really keen to avoid that. And indeed, we're planning kind of post-discharge networks, if you want, so that people retain connection with Kerry Farm and can come back uh, so that you're not kind of here for three months and then it's see and, and that's it. You could might come back on a day basis, to keep engaging with social work or social carers, for example, who can help you continue the journey of rebuilding your life. So th- the hope is that if we do enough of that work and put enough time, effort and support into people, that they don't end up coming back into hospital after a short period of time feeling deflated and, you know, troubled and people going, it's not working. And all the kind of problems and, and stress and strain that comes with that is really hard on people and their families and the people who are trying to help them as well. Nobody's winning in that. You know, everyone feels... Um, that something is broken. And if you talk to people in those settings, everyone will say, this is broken. This isn't really working. You know, we can only do what we can do. And people are absolutely crying out for something like this. Like the amount of support, goodwill, positive intention that we've gotten from both potential service users, people saying, is this place open? When is it open? Uh, And also mental health care professionals of all colors and creeds, all saying, we need this. We need something like this. It, it'll be full in the morning. If we do what we're supposed to do well and we open it up, it'll be full in the morning. Um, so you could have several of these potentially uh, across the country. The need is such at that transitional phase between acute mental health care and the community to, to help people move along so that they build, stabilize for themselves. And um, With the best will in the world, we're not able to do that right now and we're really failing people. So this is a huge step in the right direction to help people in that space.
1: Yeah, and as you say, everyone wins then because it's not easy for the people working to help those in mental health if you can't help them to get back to their lives. If you're just patching them up and sending them back out just to see them again in a few weeks' time, that's going to have a really corrosive impact on the entire system. John, you mentioned Google Farm, that that was where the idea first came, a similar facility in the US. So what sort of outcomes have have they had? What do we know as to how this works? When you lay it out and we talked about the difficulties with somebody and how it can be a challenge for them to return to normal normal life after receiving treatment. How has it worked in similar projects?
2: Well, it's important for us that you know, this isn't just an initiative in isolation, that there is evidence-based for for what's going on. And Gould Farm have had a longitudinal study running for about uh, 13-plus years. And the outcomes on that study are very good in terms of individuals reporting of their self-esteem and the like. But also, and perhaps more importantly, from funders and from a governmental perspective, um, outcomes like independent living has gone from, you know, something like uh, 30% to over 60% 18 months after being in the farm. Employment statistics before the farm of like 14% going to well over 50% post the farm. So from from a societal point of view, if you can bring people from being a burden in inverted commas on the state receiving services to actually getting to a place where they're living independently and going back into employment... Those are huge differences and really positive outcomes. And there's other farms in the US like Cooper Reese Farm, and they show on psychological measures across all the different types of mental illness, significant improvements in general functioning of people uh, coming out of their farm as well. Now, undoubtedly, it's an area that there's more research needed. And we're very fortunate in that the uh, psychology department of Maynooth University have really jumped on board with the initiative. Professor Mac McLaughlin, Professor Sinead McGilloway, uh, Dr. Katrina Toole and Dr. Rebecca Murphy, who's now in Trinity. They're coming together and they're going to um, research our processes and our outcomes. And it's sort of a long-term commitment between Kiri Farm and Maynooth to make sure that not only the inputs of what we're doing is evidence-based, but to independently review the outcomes. And if we can show better outcomes, then others can use this research to help justify building more of these in Ireland and beyond.
1: There is a centre similar in Cork. Is much known about their success rate.
2: Yes, Liela have been around, I think, since about 2011, 2012. And they have a capacity for about 12 people. And they've been doing great work. It's a slightly different model in that it's... a. People stay there in a housing type model for about 18 months, and they're supported with coaching and psychological support. And most importantly, they're supported through the work on the farm and the community. And those sorts of ingredients are very similar to what will go on in Kerry Farm. And... They have been audited by the HSE. They're largely funded by the HSE. And they had, a, I think it was an audit in 2019 and some very good outcomes and increased funding going to them. But unfortunately, in the system that we have, they can only accept people in Cork and Kerry and they only have 12 places. So they're doing absolutely wonderful work. And Jess Anglin down there, she's uh, leading it at the moment. and hugely supportive to what we're doing in the farm and uh, yeah we really appreciate their support
1: and martin rogan ceo of mental health ireland how important a feature is hope in in all of this it's something I've, I've seen emblazoned looking through gould farm and all the similar facilities it's a word that keeps popping up again and again what is hope's role in someone's recovery
3: i think in- Hope is is a vital component and in terms of um, before any of us embark on any sort of journey of any description, we need to be more than hopeful that we'll actually arrive there. So in the whole space around recovery, and we need to understand that for most people with significant mental health needs, they will recover. The question is, how will they recover at what pace? And I suppose there's a phrase sometimes used in in recovery around CHIME and it's about having choice. I think Kiri Farm will offer people a real incredible choice hope is, is that key component in terms of that energises the person, they can see a way forward. Um, and sometimes working with other people who've also recovered, it can be a really strong beacon that I can do this. And that doesn't mean that um, you necessarily need to follow in the footsteps of another individual. But we know that people with lived experience have an enormous contribution. And for example, in our own organisation, we've recruited 64 people in the last year, people with lived experience in recovery education roles. And the hope that they can provide to others um, has, been, has been really, really effective. I suppose to come back on the word chime, uh, the next letter is I for identity. And it is about regrouping who am I, who do I wish to be, what's the life that best fits me? And I think when John is talking there about outcomes, one of the, the key outcomes is that you come out, that you actually have an opportunity to rejoin the traffic, that you don't retreat into a space, um, but that you regather your confidence, new skills, new relationships, new friendships, but you move forward and onwards and outwards. So there's no dependency. You you develop your own independent identity and and you fashion a new self, if you like. Um, And that's a really important part of the recovery process. Also in terms of, in Chime, the next letter is M for for meaningful. So it's real. It's not a bogus exercise. It's not going round in a loop. It's not rinse and repeat. This is actually meaningful. It has, um, you know, real value for me as an individual as to what I would want to do with my own life uh, and what contribution I can make to my community. So being meaningful and being real and authentic is, is a really important part. And then the last letter in CHIME is E for empowerment. And this is where the individual takes back control or agency and makes their own decisions and develops that sense of autonomy and, and lives with the consequence of their decisions as well, which is a really important thing that when people are recovering from mental health needs, there can be a tendency for either professionals or indeed family members sometimes to to crowd the person out a little bit. But to be truly empowered is to make full decisions and, and live in, in the real way like that. So um hope is is a, a core component. And it's certainly one of the things I find very attractive when I see Shliella and, and Kiri Farm is you're offering people a credible way forward that's comfortable, that's able for them, um, and, and is actually really appealing.
1: Because I'm sure you begin to build a bit of an identity as being a, a problem or being broken. You mentioned that word earlier, um, Dr. Owen Galvin, and you go and receive treatment, but there's still this idea that you needed to be fixed, and you need to be somewhere where you can start to believe in yourself a little bit again. Because it's it's hard for families, and it's hard for for colleagues to know what the right thing to do is. But I think it's so important that we keep talking about this because we're talking about mental health a lot more than we ever did. But there is still so much stigma and fear around somebody and we're forgetting that it could be anybody.
0: Absolutely. Um, And this is one of the roles that people with lived experience bring so importantly into the mix. Because when you meet people who've been through the system and listen to their stories and listen to what helped them, what didn't help them, how they would like things to be, which we've done repeatedly and will continue to do in, in the journey of developing Kiri Farm. Um, it becomes really obvious that uh, the language that we use, the way we think and talk about the problems is, is really important. And that treating people as people, as opposed to illnesses, for example, is a really important piece. So I'm getting to know you as a person and the way that you describe your problems is the way that you describe your problems and lets us talk about how we can help with those problems uh, so that it's it's credibly knitted into that person's journey as an individual as opposed to treating the patient with an illness in a hospital, which can be quite depersonalizing um, in a sense. That sense of uh, being valued as a human being, even if you're broken, is so important that when people are in the depths of despair or they're, They've lost their, how their mind works for them, has kind of lost the run of itself in a sense. They're overwhelmed by fear. They can't sleep. They can't settle in themselves. They st- people still know they're being related to as a human being or not, even when they go through these really difficult experiences. So having a culture where your intention is to relate to someone with respect as a human being and an individual and facilitating them to move out of this difficult period back into finding their feet is extraordinarily important. And a lot of the service user feedback that has been kind of uh, filtered through various research, etc., over the years would say that, you know, being respectful of my personhood in some version or other is one of the most important ingredients. So when people come into a place like Curie Farm, they will be a meaningful contributor to a community, first and foremost. Uh, so that's the ground out of which everything else is based. So any mental health treatment, for example, that is offered to someone is offered in that context. But first and foremost, you're a person we're inviting into this community and you're welcome and you have a meaningful contribution to make even if you're going through a really difficult period in your life right now. That kind of attitudinal philosophy is really central and it's a very hard thing to make happen in the services at the moment because of how things run. And that's while I recognise that there are brilliant people doing brilliant work in those services at the same time.
1: Yeah, and I think nature will play a fundamental role because it's outside of that clinical setup. It's out, it's in nature, and I think that'll have a huge impact. I know there's lots of Nordic countries that after big surgery, even you're sent to somewhere where you can look out and go for walks and it's just seen as a very important element to recovery. So I think that's also a huge part. It sounds like a very special project and a very special place. You have run into a couple of stumbling blocks with with planning that you're are, that are being worked through at the moment, but you're confident by 2024, Kerry Farm will be a reality.
2: Well, first to say we got planning approval subject to appeal from Kildare County Council, and Kildare County Council's um, award of the planning was with 32 conditions. So they've put huge thinking and effort into ensuring that what happens at Kiri Farm is built in in a way appropriate to the farm setting. Um, Unfortunately, that was appealed to onboard Planola. Now, with onboard Planola, we don't know how long it'll take. Originally, we were due to have a decision by the end of August. We recently received a letter to say that that decision will now be by the 16th of November. So we hope to get a positive answer from onboard Planola by the 16th of November. But we don't know. Uh, Sometimes these things can be extended for many, many months. So it's impossible for us to say when. Our best guess is after we get approval from onboard Planola, we then have to raise the funding and then we have to do the build. The build is about... 12 to 15 months. So the optimistic view would be two years after we get approval, we'll have it built and ready to go. So if we got planning by the end of this year, we, in the optimistic scenario, we'd be ready to go at the end of 24, at the very start of 25. So we do have to raise a significant amount of money. Uh, we've raised about 2 million so far, just over 2 million. And um, Yeah, it's, you know, we've shown you the designs there. We've to build eight houses, a community building, a farm shop, a cafe. There's a significant uh, funding uh, raising that we need to do. And we're doing that through engaging with philanthropy, um, looking at things like the Immigrant Investor Scheme, uh, looking at government funding. So donations from the public, all of these things will help us to get it built.
1: Well, you know, it is something positive because I'm sure you come up against it at Mental Health Ireland all the time, Martin. You know, this these long waiting lists that there's more need than there is supply um, and that that is something that's really impacting on people's mental health. So to have a pod- positive project like this and to hear that it's in the works, I truly hope that we get to talk again when I come down to visit the farm and see it In action. If people want to find out more, pledge their interest and support, you can go to kyriefarm.ie. That's spelled K Y R I E Farm.ie. To John McKeown, founder, director, and board member of Kyrie Farm, Dr. Owen Gallivan, clinical psychologist for HSE North Dublin and director on board of Kyrie Farm, and Martin Rogan, CEO of Mental Health Ireland. Thank you all for coming in today.
0: Thank Thank you. you. Thank you.
1: Now, did you know that Irish women are five times more likely to die from heart-related issues than breast cancer? And so the Her Heart Matters campaign aims to encourage women to make vital, sustainable changes to their health. JT Trainer is health promotion and information training team member at the Irish Heart Foundation and he joins me in studio now. Hello, JT. Hey, Claire. Thanks for having me. Just to give people those figures, because they really blew my mind. Uh, And I am a woman. I don't know if you noticed, but, you know, the CSO data from 2020 says 4,132 women died from cardiovascular disease. That was 27% of all female deaths when 742 women died from breast cancer in that same year. Now, nobody is trying to diminish the experience of either or any one of the women in that situation or to say that one issue is more important than the other but as a woman I feel we talk about being breast aware all the time and it, that kind of conversation is omnipresent whereas I have never discussed with my friends heart health at all why do you think that is?
4: Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. It's something that we were really shocked at. Um, in 2021, Lancet came out with a report around cardiovascular di- disease in women in the world. And what they really came out and said is cardiovascular disease is under-researched, under-recognised. And for that reason, it's under-diagnosed and under-treated. So that's something we're really trying to uh, make aware to Irish society that there is too many uh, Irish women being affected by heart disease. So, like for example, one, one example we would give is if you if you ask anyone to imagine someone having a heart attack, what like uh, on TV or what you've seen in the movie, nine times out of ten they'll imagine a man clutching his chest, because it's seen cardiovascular disease is seen as a man's, a man's disease, and as the stats bear out, like one in four women, the same as men, are dying from heart disease in Ireland every year, and in actual fact, with the most recent uh, stats that are out you're six times more likely to die of heart disease and breast cancer.
1: And it's so interesting. We had um, Dr. Hazel Wallace on the show a few weeks back about her book, The Female Factor. And she's talking very much about women's health and women's health issues and and, and some of the challenges it faces, like you said, it being under-resourced and under-researched. And she was saying that sometimes the issue can be that that, stereotype we have that a woman who presents with chest pains is obvious, is often associated with anxiety or that she is hysterical, whereas a man will instantly be hooked up to the ECG and, and, and checked straight away. Um, and I suppose we're starting to talk about these things more and break down these barriers a little bit more. And the stereotypes are changing because another factor that's put into it is that Often women are the caregivers so they just trudge on before they actually end up and reach for help because they're busy and I, I think that's starting to change as well because men are, are caregiving just as much as women now. So it's about time we started to change the
4: conversation. Exactly, it's given them, it's allowing women, allowing themselves to like, give themselves time to look after themselves. So like one, one uh, tagline we've had during this campaign is like self-care isn't selfish. Like the... Uh, we used a lot of focus groups uh, running up to the Her Heart Matters campaign. And that's a real message that came out with women in their 40s and 50s that they felt they didn't have the time to spend on themselves. And it's something I can reflect in my Like when I look at my own family, my mother, she spent her younger years raising me and my siblings. Then she had older aunts that she was spending time uh, looking after. And now she's got grandchildren. And she's like, and we're always trying to emphasise with her, like you need to take time for yourself here and look after yourself. Um so it's it's definitely a message that we're trying to get through, and it is becoming easier. But um, like the plus side around all this, is it's a real message at the Irish Heart Foundation. We tried to drive home is like eighty percent of all premature heart disease and stroke is preventable through lifestyle factors. That's that's the real positive. Like although all the stats are very negative, like that's the positive message we're trying to get out. And women in in that age bracket of forty to fifty, uh, as we know, menopause has a, an influence on their cardiovascular risk. We're we're saying that this is the perfect time to sit back and, and evaluate yourself and and see where you can make improvements, and that's what we've tried to do through the whole Heart Matters campaign. Like we've de- devised a lot of um, resources and, and self care journals where it's not just dictating like you need to do this or so you need to do that. It's yeah, because everybody's
1: different. Self care is going to look different to everybody, isn't exactly,
4: it? Exactly, and that's it. Was one of the questions when we were first coming up with the campaign and. Uh, their shark Foundation is a very female-dominated organisation. Just because the way it is, uh, it just happens to be that way. But we were having a lot of conversations in the room, and people were talking about self-care. And I asked the question, "Well, what is self-care?" And everybody gave a different answer. And it's it, that's the 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 point. Like we want to we want people to sit down and look at their own lifestyle and see where they can make the gains. These like these eighty percent lifestyle changes. They're not massive. Changes in your in in your diet or physical activity. Sometimes yeah. it's just the smallest. Uh, You're not
1: transforming everything no. all at once. They're very small little investments, investments in yourself.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's 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 assessing yourself and seeing where can I make these small benefits. And because we are this, the people we're talking about are very time poor in terms of. Uh, so the, it's it's making making it as accessible to them. Seeing where they can make the changes and then helping them along the path of setting goals and maintaining those goals.
1: So, what is some of the advice then around some of
4: the things to keep your heart healthy? Well, it's in in general you have so in in terms of cardiovascular disease, you have uh, two types of risk factors: you have modifiable and non-modifiable, or changeable and non-changeable. The non-changeable uh, factors are things like age, gender. So, as we get older, the risk goes up. But the non are the the changeable factors are the ones we really focus on. So that's things like blood pressure. Um your cholesterol levels so linking into a healthy diet, physical inactivity, uh, smoking is another one, alcohol consumption. So these are the real things that by making small tweaks, they can make huge differences.
1: So where would you suggest someone start? So say we're looking at, I always think when the word diet comes in, people think they need to start restricting and, you know, changing everything and there'll be no more joy left in their life. And that's not true. Would a good place to start be? If you are time poor and you've been eating a lot of convenience food because your life is busy, if you start with cooking one meal a week, start it, there and exactly. stock cook- up your freezer. Do it big in bulk. Stock up your freezer. Eat it once that night, and then you start to build. So at least once or twice a week, you're eating a home cooked meal.
4: Exactly. Yeah. And like the the messaging is very. It's the same theme along many many health messages in 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 the country. Like this is a conversation I have numerous times a week with with people. It's. It's not about depriving yourself. Sometimes adding something in can give you as much benefit as taking something away. So, as simple as uh, adding one piece of fruit. If 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 you're someone who doesn't eat any fruit in the day, even adding one piece of fruit can help towards reducing your blood pressure. Adding a handful of nuts a day. It's the same as uh, like it's shown that the increase of fiber and healthy fats that can that can lower your cholesterol over time. Doing small consistent things. Like That's so why I would encourage people uh, that I work with to have a bag of mixed nuts or plain nuts in the house and just take them as if you would take a pill in the morning, take a handful in the morning. And that will, over time, over the course of six, as again, we're talking about small sustainable changes, that's something that you can enact and maintain for a long period of time. And it will yield benefits in the long run.
1: And it's a mindset
4: shift, isn't it?
1: You're doing something to nourish yourself and mind yourself. I think we get so lost. it's, It's one of my biggest things I bash on about on this show is that we get so caught up in punishing ourselves and restricting ourselves all in the pursuit of health and that's not what health is. I love that you're saying that, that something we add in can actually bring us joy and and that is essentially
4: Yeah, it's a real phenomenon. It's like something I was looking at recently, like the negative bias where we could do 10 things right and then you might have a takeaway on a Saturday and you. Not throw it, your hat at throw it. Throw your hat at it. Yeah. Not on the because like, I often say you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Um, so it, it yeah, it's more. It's like uh, setting those small achievable goals and then are uh, ex- acknowledging to yourself that you've done them and 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 we give it time to to see the benefits and yield and another thing I always like to say to patients is like a, a rising tide lifts all boats. So if you can get one thing right, like we know if you start eating better you you will inherently feel better to exercise more or your sleep will improve or if you start getting a little bit more physical activity your sleep will improve and you'll feel more rested and then maybe your your eating habits will improve so it's not we're we're very conscious uh, in the the health function team is that we don't want to dictate to people you need to do this and this is where the the journal on the website we've designed really goes, comes in with Letting, giving someone this the space and the time to assess where they are at the moment and then let them make the choice okay what can I what can I uh, move on here what can I make a change on
1: and I have been resistant to journaling myself because it's something that's been you know spoken about in health and wellness all the time and I really questioned why I was, because I think we all know if we plan a weekend away somewhere, if you've done a bit of research first and thought, well, that'd be a good place to go and there's a nice restaurant mm-hmm. to eat in, that you're probably going to have a better experience than if you just amble your way through. Now, some people prefer that. But in life, we do need to take a minute every now and then to say, how's all this going? What's working for me at the minute? And what isn't? And we we just plough on and say, there's no time, there's no time. And yet we're finding time to watch all our soaps or spend time on Netflix or flick through our phone and that's not to say they have to go all together but surely there's half an hour in a week to spend time on yourself whether it's meeting a friend going for a walk cooking yourself a nice meal as we said self-care is going to be different for everybody you're doing it because you, you
4: want to feel well in yourself okay, you, want to, yeah, you want to feel the benefits and that's another important thing is whenever you do it it's important to check in with yourself immediately after and say Well, how do I feel compared to before I done this? Uh, Like, I don't think anyone has ever regretted going for a walk in the park, but we very rarely sit down after we come in from that the walk and say, you know, I actually feel better. Like, I feel like I've more energy, and those are the realities. When you start checking in on those, that's where the benefit comes and the motivation comes to do it again. Um, And in terms of the behaviors, that uh, that's another thing we've built into our journal. It's it's understanding your habit, trying to look at your habit loop. So. What triggers a certain behaviour and and how then if you can understand what triggers a behaviour, you can understand, well, how can I mitigate that? out? What can I do in, in terms of is it, in case, is it a case of I'm working late three nights a week and I end up just picking up a frozen pizza in the evening, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But if, if it's a case of you could have healthier options bought in at the weekend that it's in the house when you get home you've you've mitigated some of that uh, issue. You've cut out a little bit of unhealthy fats. You've cut out a little bit of salt that you're taking in on a weekly basis.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it was a big revelation for me. Everyone talks about podcasts now and podcasts can be a great way to learn and light up and, you know, light yourself up and find out new information. I stick one on and get a bit of cooking done on a Sunday and then I'm kind of set up for the week. I don't do it every Sunday and I think it's really important that growth isn't linear. Some Mm. weeks we have a, a good week, a great week, the next week we fall off, then we get back on. Everybody is absolutely the same and just ultimately doing their best. But without taking that time to assess where you're at, you don't see the gaps and you don't see the positive steps you could make onto how you feel. You have a webinar on uh, the 29th. Um, lots of health professionals are going to be speaking and lots of people with lived experience. It's called Her Heart Matters. Let's talk about menopause. Where can people find out more about this and everything you've mentioned so far? So again, if they go to the
4: uh, irishheart.ie and we have our campaign page, Her Heart Matters, and you can sign up for the the webinar there. So the 29th of September is World Heart Day. So we're really excited about yeah, about this webinar, and as you said, it's bringing some health professionals like Dr. Deirdre Lunder from the, who is the clinical lead of menopause in the maternity, Irish Maternity Hospital, who's a real tour de force on on the topic around menopause and heart disease, and uh, then we have like some people with uh, lived experience. Again, we're not looking; it's not a webinar in terms of uh, we're looking to dictate. It's more of a conversation of women around a table about their experiences.
1: I love this approach, and and what is the connection? Do women in their 40s, 50s and beyond need to start thinking about their heart health or acting differently?
4: Yeah, so we are, we're approaching, a, as this is an annual campaign, we, we're, we're doing a multi-annual campaign around women's heart health in the coming years. But this year, we have really focused into that age of 40 and 50, primarily around the menopause because, and this was again, as you would expect, I didn't have much experience around menopause when we started researching the campaign. But women's risk of heart disease increase as they enter menopause and it's, and then as they leave leave the other side. And it's basically around uh, to do with their estrogen. So their estrogen has a protective element to your blood vessels, So it keeps your blood, fe- blood vessels flexible and it keeps your your bad cholesterol low and as your estrogen begins to decrease as you enter menopause and then as you exit it you've no estrogen your your risk your risk of heart disease and stroke actually um becomes the same as men's so you and that's where the the inequality sort of comes by so i was actually shocked when you think about it like a third of of a woman's life is spelt majority is spent after menopause. So it's a long period of time where you're not, you, you You may think you have that protective element of the heart disease and stroke, but you actually don't. So that's why we're really trying to focus in on 40 or 50 year olds and to really let get them to assess their heart health and see what changes they can make now.
1: Give us that website
4: again. Uh, irishheart.ie and the campaign page is Her Heart Matters.
1: Well, I think it's incredible and I've learned a lot and as a woman in her 40s it sounds like it was information I should have known beforehand. JT Trainer, health promotion and information training team member at the Irish Heart Foundation. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks very much, Claire. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Hugo De Silva who is on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening and to all my guests. I will see you next week.
0: Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.